So Paul, like any good thinker, anticipated not only objections to things he was saying, but also reactions to what he wrote. So then at the end of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, he drew his discussion back towards pastoral concerns in light of what he had said earlier in this chapter about this sort of daunting man of lawlessness. And the last time we were together to recap, the last time we considered Second Thessalonians at least, we discussed that man of lawlessness who would be a figure within the church who would lead a great apostasy and claim worship for himself. We don't yet know his full identity, but he's already at work. We do know that. Remember, I sort of gave you a tweaked translation of verses 6 and 7. Let me just re-repeat those here for you now. And you know what is presently ruling, so that he is revealed in his own time, because that mystery of lawlessness is already at work, but only until the one who rules, namely the man of lawlessness himself, is removed from our midst, namely from that throne in the church he illegitimately claimed. So then in verse 8, it tells us how Jesus returns to kill that lawless one as soon as his identity is revealed. Now, here's the thing. I hope you remember that the emphasis in all of that was on Jesus' victory over this preeminent foe. And that should give us hope because we as Christ's people still anticipate that victory. But as with any dense passage, it's it's difficult, at least on my end, to cover everything in it. And so as we progress to the next section of Second Thessalonians two, thirteen to three five, I, I actually think that I need to, to circle back a little bit and and cover verses 9 to 12 better because I sort of did a really fast flyover at the end. But those verses are the context for Paul's final points in this chapter. So as always, we need to remember that Paul wrote this letter to Christians under hardship to encourage them. It was meant to be words of hope to help them endure and thrive in faith. And this passage continues that pastoral theme to build up struggling believers. And the way this passage accomplished that is what we have to consider throughout this sermon. So the main point is God's sovereign work of election and answering prayer ensures we will not be deceived by the lawless one. God's sovereign work of election and answering prayer ensures we will not be deceived by the lawless one. And I'm going to take that same sort of different approach than what I usually do and ask four questions tonight. Um, I think that's the best way to work through this material. If you have a better way, probably don't tell me because... This is the best I can do, and it'll already be done. So, uh, first question. What do verses 9 to 12 add to our understanding about that man of lawlessness? What do verses 9 to 12 add to our understanding about that man of lawlessness? So I breezed over these verses 
at the end of the last sermon on on this book, just indicating how it shows that unbelievers aren't especially enlightened, but they are in fact deceived. And there's more that we can say about these verses, though, and they form a crucial context starting point for Paul's points starting in verse 13. So read verses 9 to 12 with me, if you will, in your copies of God's Word. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion, so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So verse 9 says that the man of lawlessness, that figure who, who demands to be worshipped within Christ's church, the, the temple of God, as this passage put it, comes by the activity of Satan. And, which is never a good thing, uh, this helps us though to understand that mystery of lawlessness back in verse 7. And it was already at work in Paul's day. The mystery of lawlessness that, if you, if you remember the way that I've phrased this, that rules the lawless one, who rules until his revelation is Satan's energy. Okay, so here, in, in our kitchen, which I know very little about, we have several appliances all in one area. And sometimes, because they're all collected in the same spot, they don't get their own individual electric socket. So I come in all excited to turn on the kettle, to make some tea, fill it up, hit the switch, and nothing happens. And so my first reaction as an eternal pessimist is to think the thing is broken because the worst case scenario has to be the case, right? But so far, the problem has always been that I need to plug it in. And the point is that things have to have power to work. And in this case of the man of lawlessness, all the things he is able to do and things he attempts to do to achieve are powered by the devil. This figure who does not have to be a single, you know, one-person individual, excuse me, but could be someone occupying an office that participates in this ongoing mystery of lawlessness, well, that person who occupies that role is plugged in to the devil. And it does seem like he's able to do some fairly impressive things. He can perform false signs and wonders, which help him achieve his wicked deception for those who are perishing. What this means is the lawless one will be able to do things that those without true faith will find impressive and enticing. And that's likely the reason that he will be able to claim a throne for himself in the church and demand worship. He might claim 
to have divine words, new revelation, or be able to perform miraculous things. But whatever these false signs are, they deceive people who are in the church who do not truly believe the truth. And that is how this lawless one is able to lead that rebellion, that apostasy, that rebellion of faith mentioned in verse 3. So Paul, Paul made it clear also if someone is deceived by this lawless one's devil-fueled deeds. Some phrases are fun to say. I, that's kind of one of them. Devil-fueled deeds, it is because God is punishing them because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. My, okay, so my dad lives in Kentucky and, and a major part of the economy there is tobacco farms. And, and one of the problems that arises in, in that sort of context is that teenagers end up with really easy access to cigarettes. There were plenty of stories about, so, so to sort of draw us to the relevance, there were plenty of stories about people I knew getting caught smoking and their parents' solution was was to punish them by making them smoke a whole carton of cigarettes, which is like, I mean, I don't actually, I've never bought a carton of cigarettes, but I think it's like hundreds. So, so because these underaged teenagers wrongly love to smoke, so the punishment was an abundance of that wrong thing they loved. And the point is, we see God work in a similar way in these verses. People refuse to love the truth, so as punishment for that sin, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false. This this heaping up of unbelief in false things results in their condemnation. Verse 12. Now, this warning about the lawless one within the church who will be able to deceive people <clears throat> in the church into following his false works of Satan would naturally cause some serious worries among his readers who were new Christians. How could they know they were not among those being punished with delusion? How can we know we're not going to be ones led away by this man of lawlessness? He comes within the church after all. So that brings us to our second question. How did Paul contrast the Thessalonians and the lawless one's followers? How did Paul contrast the Thessalonians and the lawless one's followers? So maybe you see now why I opened talking about how Paul anticipated reactions to his points. All this about being deceived by the, the Antichrist can be, I mean, it can be pretty terrifying. Really. So in verses 13 to 15, Paul shifted to assure the Thessalonians that they were not in the group of deceived unbelievers, but rather they belonged to Christ. So we see that contrast he made in that first word of verse 13, but. 
So verses 13 and 14, if you'll read those with me. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, instead of being worried that the Thessalonians were under the power of of Satan's deception, Paul was thankful that God chose them. So, we come back to that doctrine of election that was so prevalent in 1 Thessalonians. Paul opened that letter giving thanks as well. Chapter 1, verse 4. For we know, brothers, and listen to the the language here. For we know, brothers loved by God, here he, brothers loved by the Lord, a Trinitarian interchange. Anyway, for we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you in our in, in our text, Paul again rejoiced that he had confidence these people were among God's elect. Not only did Paul see clear evidence that these readers were among God's elect, but he was also glad that they were chosen as the first fruits to be saved. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, okay, so it may not be instantly obvious what this first fruits thing is about. But we, we can make some sense of it if we if we sort of just ponder the metaphor, I think. So I like popcorn. But the, the best kind of popcorn is the kind that you cook in the pot on the stovetop yourself. I, I can't really find that in the UK, which is why I'm sort of bothered about it right now. But it's how popcorn should be done. So what you do is you get a pot... You put some oil in the bottom, and then you put a layer of your kernels down in the oil, and you have to use a lid, or you'll have a flat mess. So you leave these kernels in the oil as they heat. And then there is that magic little moment when you hear the first one pop. And it's magic because you know it means... All the others are about to pop as well. And the first popped kernel is the guarantee of a full batch of good popcorn. And the point is, that first kernel, as it pops, is like the first fruits. So the first fruits on a fruit vine or rose bush, something like that, signal that more fruit or flowers are coming. And that, in this passage, is the role of these new Christians and what the role they had in Thessalonica. They show that the fact that these people had become believers, it shows that God is at work in their region. And that there would be more believers to follow them. Paul was thankful God had elected them to have that special role to be the first church of Thessalonica. Sure, it was a Presbyterian church. I am, actually. The results of that predestination were that they would grow in godliness and have faith. Now, those lines in our text, to be saved through sanctification of the Spirit 
and belief in the truth, they might cause us to pause. Sanctification is our growth in godliness, and here Paul wrote that we are saved through sanctification. So does that undercut salvation by faith alone? Is salvation by sanctification and faith? I bet you can obviously guess. I don't bet, I'm sorry. I imagine that you obviously guess I'm going to say this does not undermine faith alone. So so first of all, a point to note here is that Paul has in mind here, had in mind here, uh, a discussion about a, a very broad category of salvation. There are many facets of salvation. Reformed people are vigorous, as they should be because the Bible is, about justification by faith alone, as we can be declared righteous or forgiven and and vindicated in God's sight only, only by receiving Christ as Savior by faith. But God does not stop His saving work at that. He continually, by His Holy Spirit, as this verse says, works increasing holiness in us. Now, so note carefully, the, the Bible is full of amazing grammar. If you are a grammar nut like me, like the Bible is your book. So note carefully, this verse does not say by or even because of sanctification. It doesn't say that. There would be different, I mean, yeah, I, I geek out on sort of translating these things. So there would be different Greek words he used if it meant that. So the road of salvation that we walk is one of developing in sanctification. Now one, nobody should think of the road upon which we walk as the reason we get to our destination. Now it's helpful. We think it marks the path to where we're going. But as Ephesians 2.10 says, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus in order to do God work, to do good works which God prepared in advance with the result that we walk in them. We travel a path of sanctification. We walk the road of growth and godliness in this life of salvation and we travel that road by believing in the truth. God elects us to that and our works don't add anything to salvation. They are its fruits. But we walk in their path. And that's clarified for us in verse 14 where Paul wrote that we are called to that life of faith-fueled sanctification by the gospel. It is by believing in this gospel that we get to obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is, the gospel of Jesus' life and death life, death, and resurrection for you, not our godliness. His life, death, and resurrection is the reason that you will receive the glorified body of resurrection like Jesus has. That makes sense. It is this trust in the gospel and being put on the road of holiness that marked the difference between the Thessalonians and those who would be deceived by the lawless one. Because they knew that they could, as verse 15 says, 
stand firm and hold fast to the traditions taught by the apostles. So the Thessalonians had already chosen a side. And they had chosen Christ instead of the Antichrist. And that should fill them with, in, with assurance to endure in faith. And so we come to our third question. What affects, effects, what effects should this assurance produce? What effects should this assurance produce? So when, when we come to the settled assurance that we belong to Christ and not the lawless one, there should be two effects of knowing that we belong to this wonderful Savior. So Paul described the first effect in verses 16 and 17. Now, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loves and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. So the first effect is comfort from the triune God. We see again how Paul bound together the the Lord Christ with God the Father as the singular source of comfort, hope, and grace, underscoring Jesus' divine identity. But his Paul's pastoral motives show through in that he wanted the Thessalonians to have peace in light of this whole big doctrinal discussion. And so that takes us back all the way to verse 2, where Paul wanted them not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarm. And he brought that full circle here by giving them reason to stand firm, hold fast, and have comfort. Paul outlined the second effect of this assurance in 3, 1, and 2. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men for not all have faith. So the the second effect, the first one is comfort and the second one is that we become praying people knowing That in the same way that God has predestined us and brought us to faith in Jesus Christ through the preaching of the gospel, he has also chosen others and will bring them to faith through the preaching of the gospel. Therefore, we ought to pray that God would enact, execute his decree in history. That in his good providence he would make the gospel preached an effectual means to persuade sinners to accept Christ. We should be praying for the success of the gospel and the protection of ministers, it says here. We should beg God that gospel proclamation would have speedy prosperity. And we should beg God that He would put a hedge around those men he has appointed to be elders in his churches. We need to pray this way, the end of verse 2, chapter 3, because not all have faith. We often have that question, don't we? How long 
do I need to pray about this? How long do I have to keep praying when I've prayed so long? It's a frustrating little question, isn't it? We we have these things that weigh on our hearts and we pray for them for a week, a month, a year, and eventually we think, is this really doing anything? Why must I keep praying about this? God, can't you just do this already? And we have our answer to those questions buried in this verse. Because we are meant to pray for unbelievers and for each other because not faith. So how long do we keep praying? Until all have faith. So just keep praying. Let's ask one final question. What must we do? What must we do? I don't want to overcomplicate things here. And we can sum up this passage as a very simple and yet a very profound thing to do. Take comfort in God. Find rest and encouragement in God. Verses 3 to 5. But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Can you not sort of hear the sigh in Paul's inner voice as he finished this long discussion of staying grounded in Christ and knowing we belong to him even though the man of lawlessness will deceive some? Pray, Christians, because not everyone believes. But... But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you. Have confidence in that. Because we do. So let me ask you, as we draw to the end here, do you find comfort in the Lord? We can think about this two ways, right? That's a question for all of you here, but in different ways. Some of you may not trust this gospel message 
that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, lived, died, and rose from the grave to pay your sin debt and earn heaven for you. And obviously in that case, you don't find comfort in God. And I would ask you, what holds you back from coming? Is this message of the Sovereign Lord who would give you, grant you, earn citizenship in the divine kingdom for you, is that not appealing? Do you have reasons? Or do you already know that you are deceived by the lawless one with his message of self-salvation by good deeds and high self-esteem? Come to Christ now, if that's you, and quit refusing to believe the truth and be saved. Christian, do you find comfort in the Lord? But do you? Do do you plant yourself at the end of the day on that simple phrase, but the Lord is faithful? Because we do know, we know, all things counted up, the world is more than we can manage. It is. We know that whatever it is, our finances might be insurmountable. We know that kids might be difficult. We know that we fail to love our spouse. We know that lust is ever creeping at the door to devour us. We know we are greedy. We are pretentious. We are prideful. We know the odds are against us. But the Lord is faithful. He will do it. He will establish you in grace. If you are His, He will make it so that your pastors can say they have confidence you will do as the Scripture commands. Christ is our loving King who rules and defends us. He is faithful. So may the Lord direct our hearts to treasure the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we look at this passage to new Christians and we see how they must have felt so overwhelmed by what could be before them as this man of lawlessness is revealed as he before that is empowered to deceive so many even within the church and we tremble at that because we feel the weakness of our flesh and we know that our hearts give way to the enticements of the world so easily And that's why we feel that to be so daunting. If we felt strong, we would not fear in this. But we know 
that we are not strong. But the Lord is faithful. We know that Jesus loves the little children. To him they belong. They're weak, but he's strong. And we are all in that place. And so we take shelter in these simple little words. But the Lord is faithful. And we ask that you would, in all circumstances, in all walks of life, in all ways, that you would direct our hearts to the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. And we pray this because he has earned it for us. In his name, amen.